Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 123 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here, as always. Um, a good one this week, Andrew, because we're talking about the cars that you, and I think by you we sort of mean the listeners, anyone interested in cars, anyone involved in designing and engineering cars, have to drive before they die. Um, is that yeah. fair enough? Yeah, and we're going to have to, and we're going to be quite sort of sensible about this, aren't we? Because I get nothing annoys me more than you get those. <laughs> you see those sort of those books and those articles about a thousand one places you have to visit before you die. You know, among them being you know the bottom of the Mariana Trench and the top of Mount Everest, <laughs> and you know nine hundred and ninety nine of them are completely unattainable. Um, so we're not going to be doing that. So I don't imagine there are going to be too many McLaren F ones on either of our lists. Um, yeah. So these these are cars. Um, they're not even necessarily are they're the best cars they're, but they're the most important influential interesting mm. cars um and certainly on my list um yeah i think that there's a chance that you that if you put your mind to it uh either because you've got a mate who's got one or you can hire one or mm. there's some experience you can go and do i think these are all cars that you can have a reasonable chance of actually driving um and for your for your motoring education to be complete yes well, that is, that's right. It's about your motoring education and having a complete picture of what makes a great car. Um, that's certainly what I focused on. So, no, I don't have the McLaren F1 GTR on mine because I've never driven one. Um, but also, yeah, you're quite right. It's, we don't want to list a load of cars that are just well out of reach of everybody listening. That would be pointless. Um, Absolutely. That said, I've got one supercar on my list, um, okay. which, you know, that's a bit of unobtainium. Um, so we'll acknowledge it now, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not taking it off. Um, <laughs> I've, got, we... I've got some cars which are sort of a bit generic. Well, we'll get to them in a minute, uh, rather than actually being oh, specific cars. But, but, but it, like, if you drive any one of these particular type of car, then you will have a good idea. You know, the, the, the job of driving that car and having that experience mm. will, be, will be complete. Um, good. Yeah. Okay, well, before we do that, let's just have a little trot through some of the articles that we've been posting over the past week or so on the Intercooler app and website. Um, 
today we're it's uh, David Tuig, our in-house engineering whiz, um, writing about the evolution of the slick tire, the slick racing tire, which is well, it's a very compelling story, and curiously, it comes back around to the car maker that he's perhaps most associated with, that being Alpine. Um, I won't give it away here, but um, Alpine at Le Mans uh, was, let's say, a pioneer um, with the slick tyre. It's an interesting story. Uh, but he also, you know, he is, he is an engineer by trade. That is his craft. And it means that he has an understanding of the engineering of a motor vehicle that certainly I couldn't hope to have. Um, and so he explains in technical terms um, why a slick tyre does what it does. Yeah, but also technical terms are unbelievably easy yeah. to understand because That's I know because I can understand them. Um, and you know, and, and I grew up, you know, I was a child of the seventies um, where slick tires were the thing. And I can remember growing up thinking, well, you know, it seems so basic, doesn't it? You know, big wide tires putting as much rubber on the road that just seems like such an obvious thing to do. Why had they only got around to doing it in the sort of the earlier part of that decade? Um, and he kind of explains that. He explains why, you know, people just didn't bother with it. Uh, it's not that they didn't know it about it or that they didn't know how to do it. They're just, just the engineering advantages weren't appreciated because they're nothing like as obvious as, um, as you might think. So good story. Really, well, it always mm. is from David, isn't it? Very good story. Um, and sticking to the theme of motorsport. So we wanted to... I, I wrote a piece about Sebastian Vettel earlier in the year um, about how he's actually become a bit of a hero of mine um, perhaps not a driving hero necessarily, but you know someone I respect enormously. Um, and it, ten years ago, I actually rather disliked the bloke, which is totally unfair given I've, I've never met him. You know, having a personal view of him without ever having met the person is bizarre. But there we go. Um, we're revisiting that ground a little bit, but because we wanted Kurun Chandok to write a sort of farewell piece to Sebastian Vettel now that he has announced his retirement from Formula One. Um, and the the point of getting Corinne to do it is that, well, there's no one more qualified on the Intercooler writing team, is there? He knows the guy. Yeah. He actually raced yeah. against the guy. So He did. Yeah. yeah. And, wh- and where Corinne is so good, um, it would be so easy because obviously they know each other. You know, I think they're good friends. Um, so it would be so easy for him just to do a sort of soft soap. Um, and just say that, you know, um, he was brilliant, he got unlucky, he doesn't at all. It's a very Mm. balanced, uh, and in places quite critical um, piece, Um, and so it's a proper picture, rather than this Mm. sort of hagiography. So, yeah, really good story. And the the other one that I really wanted to mention now was Mel Nichols writing about the Aston Martin Bulldog. Um, And, you know, I've seen this thing online, or kicking about here and there in magazines but really didn't know the first thing about it and this is well do you want to briefly tell us what the bulldog is all about it's a one-off essentially a concept car wasn't it yeah it was a one-off concept car that they made in 1980 it was um i suppose until what until valkyrie it was aston martin's only mid-engine car um and you know it, it it was designed to do 200 miles an hour it was designed to not just be the world's fastest car, but be the world's fastest car by in a simply enormous margin. And all the evidence, although it never did it, because it never got anywhere where it could do it, all the evidence was 
Uh, we did 190 something at Myra, and if anyone's ever been to Myra, the idea of doing anything like 190 miles an hour there in anything, I mean, well, and you know, there's just no space. So if it could do 190 at Myra, I'd no doubt at all that it could do 200 somewhere given the space. Um, but this is, you know, it's, it's the story of the car. It's then rather sad um, life after Aston Martin sold it. And then the fact that it was bought by someone who understood it and cherished it and wanted to return it to its former glories, its restoration. Um, and it is now sometime soon. They are going to go somewhere and try and do 200 miles an hour in it. Um, so, you know, whatever it is, 42 years on, you know, they may finally be able to prove the original concept of the car. And because Mel's written it, because he drove it 42 years ago, I, you know, I think like three people outside the factory ever drove the car. Mel was one of them. Um, he can provide us with that insight. Uh, and he's obviously, because he's a proper journalist, he's spoken to all the people, all the people on the original project and the people who, you know, looked after the car and rebuilt it now. And, um, yeah, it's just a really comprehensive, beautifully crafted, um, look at probably the most famous British concept car there's ever been. Yeah. And some actually beautiful Amy Shaw photos in that story. We need to try and get Mel along to that occasion where this car goes for 200 miles an hour don't we that'd be brilliant to have him on the ground yeah yeah we'll see if we can do that um okay all right well let's get on with this week's podcast then we are talking about the cars that you have to drive before you die um Mm. as you said we are going to try and ground it in the real world a little bit um and to that end i'm going to kick us off with what was actually my first car um do you know what? I No, the first car I owned was a Nissan 200SX, an S13. I'm very proud of that. But the, fir- the car that I drove when I was 17, and so I did all that, the first car stuff in, um, it was actually my mum's car, um, a Mark I Ford Focus. Yeah, mine good was, call. Mine was a, a silver five-door, 1.6 LX, no ABS, steel wheels, um, Y244HNN, if anyone sees it kicking about. Um, and it was just brilliant. The, do you know what? The unusual thing about it from my perspective was that at 17, I'd maybe driven three or four other cars, the car I, I learned to drive in and passed my test in, one or two others. But even then, I could tell that that focus was different to the others. Um, I, I could tell that it steered beautifully. I could tell that it handled. I could tell that it was balanced, mostly because I had a habit of just making the thing lift off oversteer at every single roundabout and really enjoying feeling it just sort of swing around behind me. Um, but I also remember the sweet Revy engine, little 1.6 litre engine, about 100 horsepower. I remember really good gear shift. Um, and the point of having this car on this list is that it's, it demonstrates so well, perhaps better than any other car I can think of at the moment, that good handling, good road holding, good steering, a good ride needn't be the preserve of a sporting car or an expensive car. It's, it's a very affordable family hatchback, and yet it drives beautifully. Yeah, I mean, it's also its influence um everybody yeah. else realized when that thing came out that they could that the, you know, the mediocrity just wasn't going to work anymore um and everybody else read this so it basically influenced an entire in fact, i think it still is doing it an entire generation um of cars you know the so much of that was that car's brilliance was tied up in its uh in its rear suspension 
which yeah. was instead of, instead of being this sort of mere meat and two veg um, torsion beam rear axle. It was, what do they call it, control blade. It was a multi-link mm. rear axle, fully independent rear end, um, done by um, our friend Uli Eichhorn. Uh, absolutely groundbreaking um, that a car like that should have such a sophisticated rear suspension system on it. And that's what made it ride. That's what made it handle. That's what made it still. And also, you know, having that... I, th- I think the key, the key to it was that it, it, A, it allowed a degree of passive rear steer, but also because it was a multi-link, you could just tune it so much more precisely uh, and that you could sort of separate out the ride and handling disciplines and, and optimise the car for both. And it was transformative. It was absolutely transformative. Um and you know it's a bit sad these days to see hatchbacks going back to torsion beam rear axles uh, particularly on cheaper models um because well for no other reason than whatever they may say um then they're cheap um and they might be cheap but you know you only have to drive one of those focuses don't you just to realize the benefit of it um yeah absolutely and and probably still not appreciated for the f- for just how far it moved the it moved the needle um, yeah. among you know the most important car class of car particularly at the time um you know it changed it changed everything good call it, re- it really did change everything do you know what that car is now almost 25 years old yeah Whew. where does the time go um <laughs> okay. it's i want to make before you give us your first one i want to make an important point and it's that we're talking here about Obviously, we're talking about good examples of these cars, standard examples of these cars. Yes, um, absolutely. Because, you know, you might drive a Mark One Focus today with shot dampers, bad tyres, bushes that are well past their best, all sorts. Um, so they do need to be good examples, don't they? Cars that have been cared for. Um, and the next car on my list, which I won't give you just yet, uh, we'll let you do one, but I drove a lowered example of it. Um, which just totally ruined the driving experience. So we are talking about standard cars in great condition. The other thing that's going to happen is you and I are going to find out that we've got cars in common on our lists. Um, I, I, I would be surprised if the car I'm about to mention isn't on your list. It may even be the one you've just been referring to. Go on. Um, MX-5. <laughs> Do you know what? It's on my reserve list. Um, okay. I thought long and hard about it, but I, I, I do agree with you. Okay. Um, well. <laughs> Which one was, are you talking about? Anyone? I'm, talk- or- I'm talking about a Mark 1. I'm talking about yeah. a Mark 1 1600 MX-5. Um, yeah. And, 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 and to your point, um, because those cars have been so pulled about and messed about and because they do rot um, and because, you know, they have been suited up, it is so important to get one that is representative of what those cars should be like because i mean you know that car's you know 30 years old now more than 30 years old now and i can't i just can't i cannot tell you what a lightning bolt that car was when it turned up you know in the autocar office in 1990 we simply couldn't believe it this was you know i mean japanese cars okay we, we, we'd stop we'd stop laughing at them um, because, you know, things like the Lexus LS400 were around, um, the Honda NSX was on the way, Nissan 300ZS was probably around. So, you know, we knew they could make good cars. But what we didn't expect was Mazda, you know, which was not a company with any great 
um, history in the area to come up with a car that was a modern Lotus Elan. I mean, they were quite open about the fact that it had been inspired by the original Lotus Elan. Uh, it was it was so pretty. It was such a good thing to look at. And we thought, well, that's fine. They've done, a, you know, well done, guys. You've done a good looking car. And then we drove it. Oh, my God. That beautiful little 1600cc twin cam engine. Um, the gearbox. I mean, I'm still not sure I've driven a car with a nicer gear change than that. Um, and the balance of the thing. Um, and, you know, it was so easy to skid about the place and it was just such good fun to drive. But even that is not why it's on my list. It was the fact that it did all of that. And yet, you know, I can remember this. I can remember driving one. It was, in, it was on Valentine's Day in 1992 because I'd broken up with my then girlfriend um, and I was feeling a bit sorry for myself. So I decided I was going to go and tour the whiskey distilleries of the island of Isla with my mate. Um and we took one of these things from London to, you know, the west coast of Scotland, spent a few days mucking about um, drinking whiskey, and then drove it back again. And it was absolutely fine. In fact, you could put the roof up and it had decent heating. It was comfortable. It was reasonably quiet. I mean, 30 years ago, it was, it was absolutely astonishing. Um, and yeah, I think it's just one of those cars that, I mean, it won, you know, our best handling day competition, um, when there were Ferraris and 911s and all sorts around. And this little MX-5 just went and trounced the lot. It was absolutely, it was groundbreaking. It was a revelation. It was a revolution. Um, and you know, I'm not surprised that to this day, no credible rival has ever been able to establish itself. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah. But the, what's curious about the MX-5 is that there wasn't a single technology on it that was pioneering or totally new, Not at was all. there? No, it was. Not at all. It was just inherently right. The basics were right. It had the right. It, it was just done all so well. Just, double wishbones all around. Yeah, light, small, balanced. Yeah, just all the right components, the right kind but of it, engineering. But it, but it worked too. It wasn't. Yeah. You know, it wasn't some you know recreational thing which you'd only ever take out you know on a sunny day for a short distance. It could be your only car if you didn't need the luggage space. Even it didn't have a decent boot, but it had some kind of boot. Um, you know, and for lots of people, that was what they drove, and were mm. very happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. actually, it, it was so usable and so easy to live with that that's almost harmed its reputation among car people because it was adopted by the let's call them the hairdressing crowd. It certainly Ooh. has that that kind of <laughs> reputation as a hairdresser's car, doesn't it? Which actually isn't fair at all because it is. It's a thoroughbred sports car. People yeah, like us also, should really admire it. Yeah, but also, even if you're not people like us, even if you have no real interest in driving, the fact that it was, you know, it was quite practical and it was small and it was beautiful and you could put the roof mm. down, you know. And, and also, you know, the roof mechanism. It was just... Yeah. I can remember they were so complicated at the time. And this one was just like, clip, clip, chuck it over your head. That simple. Perfect. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what a great car. Okay, I'm going to suggest the Ford Fiesta ST, either the Mark 7 or the Mark 8. One of, I'm going to group them together. One of my favourite cars, um, one of my favourite modern performance cars, regardless of price. Um, I think they are superb fun. Um, also, kind of sensible fun, sensible speed. You're not, you're really not going that quickly on the road. A couple of hundred horsepower. Um, I love that they're affordable. 
You know, this has always stuck with me, particularly when I drove the Mark 8, and it was... Four and so, a half star so, so, so car people or, know what we're talking about. The, the Mark Eight is the current car. Mark Eight's the current one. The Mark Seven is the previous one, and they really they're they're very alike. The Mark Eight's got the little three pot, hasn't it? Three pot engine. Yeah. But in terms of ride handling, steering, balance, feel, they're they're very similar. Um, actually, the Eight has got certain advantages. It's got a driver's seat that goes lower, which does make a big difference. Perhaps looks a bit better. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're four and a half slash five star cars. They're nine or 10 out of 10 cars. And I was so blown away by the fact that these are sub 30,000 pound cars. You know, they are affordable. Most people, you know, if you've got a professional job, you can probably go and buy what is considered to be a four and a half or five star car. I think that's really compelling and really important. The the key so I've I've always said about these cars that if you're in any way involved in the business of making cars, designing them, engineering them, even marketing them, whatever, I think you have to be familiar with these cars because they demonstrate how polished even an affordable car can be, how well matched the major controls of an affordable car can be the way that the steering interacts with the the pedals with the gear shift with the feel of the car it's like it's all one component and you're just tweaking different parts of it rather than these sort of disparate parts um i it it has the polish in that regard of a sports car costing five, ten times the price. You know, I've compared them to Porsches in the past, the way that, how slick they are. You know, the way the clutch pedal is is linked and relates to the gear shift action, just like it's one component. Brilliant. I also love the way that they feel on the road. Um, they're super playful. They're really well balanced. So, actually, in most cars, you steer into a corner, hold the steering lock on, until you get through the apex and you unwind it through to the exit. In these cars, particularly on the right sort of road, and if you're clipping along it a little bit, you turn them in and then you're opening the steering straight away because they're starting to swing around behind you in a controlled, fluid, progressive, but very deliberate way. And so you just turn them in, open the steering, get on the power and drive out again. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I love them. And, you know, I am in the market at the moment for a new car and... A Mark Eight uh, is is firmly on my list. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a sort of it's a logical progression, isn't it? I mean the the, the reason that the Mark Eight does exactly what you were describing actually harks back to the focus that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's that yeah. you know that's that focus instilled a way of doing things, an ethos within Ford as to how their car should feel, and a determination that if that Ford was going to be the brand that people would just turn to if they were people who didn't just need a car to, to do a job but wanted to actually enjoy themselves while doing it. Um, and, you know, that's something that's now been part of, you know, the Ford way of doing things for those sorts of cars, um, you know, since the, since the Mark 1 Focus, which is, what, 97? Yeah. yeah, maybe 98, around there, though. Yeah, so 25 yeah, so years. Yeah, what a legacy. You're, you're at- you're absolutely right. The the Fiesta, the STs, they owe so much to that first um, focus. Uh, okay, let's have one of yours. Okay. So right, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? Is <laughs> there an it. original Mini on your list? No. 
No, and there's not one on mine. Okay, actually, the first thing I wrote down was original Mini, and then I thought about it a bit, and then I put a line through it. Because I think if you're going to drive a car like that, I think an original Fiat 500 is just better. Um, so the original Fiat 500, um, the original Cinquecento, it came out before the Mini. Mini came out in 59, this came out in 57. It is, to my eyes, much prettier than a Mini. It's certainly, again, to me, more fun to drive. Um, so Dante Giacosa styled it. I think it's one of the, of any kind, I think it's one of the most beautiful cars. I mean, think how influential it is. And frankly, if Giacosa hadn't styled that car in the 1950s, I don't think Fiat would exist today because Fiat for the last 10 years has existed entirely on what it calls the 500, which itself was entirely, you know, derivative in terms of its look on the original. And if they hadn't been able to do that and create this 500 sub-brand, which they have just milked and milked and milked ever since, um, I don't think the Fiat brand would have survived. Um, so it's, it's really quite important. But it is just such astonishing fun to drive. The engine, the little two-cylinder air-cooled engine, was designed by Aurelio Lampredi, who designed for, you know, the first Ferrari V12s to win in Formula One. So its heritage is absolutely pucker. Uh, it has a crash gearbox, so you can polish up your double the clutching techniques, but it's such a gentle, easy one that literally anyone can drive them, but it's just another way of keeping you busy. And because it is so ridiculously light, I mean, I don't know what they weigh, about 450 kilos, um, <laughs> and so narrow, um, it is one of the most agile things you'll ever drive. And they're just... You know, I mean, I've got one and it's ridiculous because I'm, you know, nearly six foot four and I look absurd in it. Um, but you can put four people in it. And I've been, I've had, you know, four people in mine. Um, and you could just go, I, I think it's kind of like the ultimate pub car. Um, if there's a pub 20 miles away and you, you and a mate just want to go off for a, 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 a bimble over there, you know, there, there are very, very few cars of any price in my view that would get you there in a more entertaining, charming way than that i mean and they were just they were just again back then it wasn't necessarily a revolution there's no astonishing technology i mean there were lots of rear engine cars at the time because things were rear wheel drive and it was just simpler to put the engine in the back uh, it was only the mini really which perfected front wheel drive so you know it was not like there was any kind of revolution with that uh, but it's so cleverly packaged it's so cleverly designed it's so brilliant to drive it looks so amazing um i just think they are astonishing cars love them mm. fantastic and yeah ferrari test driver raffaele di simone the the bloke who makes ferrari road cars drive the way they do um he turns up to fiorano or the factory every day in a original fiat 500 there you go if, if it's good enough for raffa <laughs> believe me it's good enough for me <laughs> indeed um okay right can i give you my supercar then we'll get it out of the way and i won't linger on it too much go on um mclaren 675 lt everything i want a modern supercar to be um from the seating position where you are almost on your back you know le mans style f1 style with your feet way out in front of you steering wheel in your chest and it's a perfect steering wheel there's nothing on it and it's grippy and it's right where you want it to be um it's and the steering itself is fantastic so precise so planted so poised 
massively agile, enormous grip, staggering performance. The performance is unbelievable. I suppose the one criticism might be that the twin turbo V8 isn't a screamer like some NA engines, but actually in that car, it's it's a it is a phenomenal engine and and when you pull for an upshift and you hear the crack from the exhaust oh yeah you don't you don't regret that it's turbocharged at all um i think they look sensational yeah that's a that's a once in a generation car for me okay okay um <laughs> i agree it's the, it's it's the best it's the best mclaren that mclaren automotive have produced and the only thing i would say it comes close to it is either a 720s or a 765lt yeah um i know you have your views about the 765lt but um yeah okay well okay this isn't a supercar um, okay we can't have this conversation without having a 911 in there i wondered when that would come up the it trouble is okay. which which one well no that's this is the thing this is this is absolutely okay. i'm glad you asked um <laughs> so so the one i've chosen is a bazillion miles away from being the best 911 but it is the one that i think is a it's probably is still the most affordable um unless you're talking about a modern car like a 996 which we know we have or a reasonably modern car like a 996 which have their own problems and can end up being quite unaffordable um but it's also the one that i think best illustrates what's good and bad about a 911 so i'm talking about an sc uh which were made i think they started making them in about 1977 and they stopped making them i think about 1984 um and and in many ways they were quite flawed cars um you know this was before they started putting you know power steering on them or abs on them uh, when they had quite wide rear tires quite narrow front tires and when the back broke loose they could get quite interesting on them they would lock their brakes up in the wet um the engine uh three liter engine it was very much a sort of torque rather than a power engine they did it in three outputs there was a 180 a 188 and a 204 um and they sort of you know one replaced the other through the lifetime of the car um but so this comes from the sort of the g series era so it was succeeded by the carrera which was the last of those cars before the 964 um came along at the end of the 1980s and what i love about the sc is is what i said it's everything that is right and wrong about 911 is in that car um so i think it looks beautiful it's rewards good drivers if you know what you're doing in one of those things they are fantastic and if you don't you could get yourself into a world of trouble they've got that ridiculous interior with buttons all over the place i mean get into an sc and see how long it takes you to find the button when it opens the sunroof um <laughs> it's 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 under the dashboard um and if you don't know that you'll never find it uh and, and also because it's pre-power steering the feel of the car um, because there's no weight on the nose is wonderful they've got galvanized bodies so they don't rot like earlier ones um, and they're still by 911 standards they are still relatively affordable and they are to me a classic 911 rather than a modern 911 you know so i to me the modern era kind of starts with the 996 when you know they got a much longer wheelbase and they got uh, water-cooled engines and a lot of the things that made the 911 what the 911 was always regarded as being disappeared now i'm not saying that that means the modern cars are necessarily worse they're just different um so i want people to have a car which a they can afford have a chance of actually driving before they die 
and when they drive it they can think to themselves okay whether this is good or whether this is bad this is what a 911 is yeah um it yeah. is the it, you know that is the definitive that is the authentic 911 feel and i think within the bounds of what you know a merely reasonably wealthy person rather than an unimaginably rich person would be able to afford i think an sc i mean if you can get a carrera a carrera is a better car um but it's just you know that is reflected in the price uh you also you need a car with that awkward old 915 gearbox um because again that's an that's an art form in itself being able to drive one of those smoothly and change gear quickly in them without making yourself look like an animal and they were just cars that and i love this about cars cars that keep you busy cars that always make you think because the more a car is making you think the more involved in the driving experience you will you will be and therefore the more fun you will have and it is as simple as that um so yeah i thought hard about which 911 to put in there and that's the one it's far from the best far long long way from the best but i think it is the best at doing that particular job which is to give someone you know without a huge amount of money the idea of what a 911 should really be like yeah, and you you have to drive some sort of 911 to understand why they've been around uninterrupted for 60-odd years, why yeah. people like us won't stop banging on about them, why the current ones sell in such huge numbers. You do you need to get your head around what that's all about, don't you? Um, and driving something like an SE will illustrate that. Um, okay, so on a similar kind of vein, I'm, I'm choosing the Caterham 7. Um, oh, it's all mine. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll both talk about it then. I'm not choosing a specific one because it's it's kind of too difficult. But you know, I'm more familiar with the more modern cars. I've driven yours, so yours is actually a very good example. But I'm thinking not one of the outrageous 260, 300 horsepower supercharged track weapons. I'm not thinking one of those. I'm not thinking one of the on at the other end of the scale, the intentionally underpowered light things with a little fluttering yeah Yeah. similar to suzuki engine all that sort of i'm thinking something in the middle um maybe even you know 160 maybe even a couple hundred horsepower but i want it to be more road biased um and the point is by driving that kind of cage from seven you will understand what driving actually is or can be you will realize how far removed from the business of operating a car you are even in the best modern sports and supercars it it's the it's essential driving isn't it it's driving stripped back to its barest constituent parts and um the how small they are how low you sit how talkative is the steering how you feel everything through your seat it's just raw driving And where you are, you are absolutely right in your choice of Caterham, um, and also not making it a specific car because that sort of car, the sort of the mid-range, the sweet spot, they've always been there. Um, it's exactly what my car is, and there's always been that car, which is just for people who just love to drive. It's not people who want to break lap records or anything else. And you know, and the problem with the the little sort of three-cylinder, eighty-horsepower things is you drive those, and you are, you know, the performance is limited, um, and you. And you do want it to get on a little bit more. But the moment you've got, as you say, 150, 160 horsepower under your right foot, that it's it's absolutely enough to bring the thing alive and remind you what, as you say, it's exactly what you say it is. is this is what driving is about. Because, you know, when you have a car that is that well configured, that well developed, 
um, and above all that light. Um, yeah, there, there, there is no purer driving experience out there, I don't think. Um, and the fact that you can get them with, uh, you know, hoods and heaters, um, and you can store a little bit of stuff on them so they can actually be used. Um, unlike, you know, it's a wonderful car like an Aerial Atom, um, which is absolutely only a high days and holidays car. Um, short distances, um, got to think about it. Uh, a Caterham, you know, I've gone on holiday in France and in, 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 in a Caterham, and yeah, I just, yeah, they're brilliant things. They'll also really teach you about the finer points of driving, um, be it road or track. At, at Evo, we had a a long-termer. It was, I think, a 420R. So a fairly, well, that is a pretty serious one, actually. It had that is. a couple of hundred horsepower. It was quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember driving it at Donington. And through that first corner, is it Redgrave? The Red first gate. right-hander, Redgate, yeah. which is quite, quite a long corner. Um, reasonably quick, actually. But I just remember driving this thing on the edge all the way through there, actually sliding it all the way through, a bit like, a, like you see the cars driving at Goodwood, or like a, it felt yeah. like a sort of 50s Grand Prix racer. You know, I, and it probably looked quite good from the outside, it was really fun from the inside, but the point was, it was it, you know, not that difficult to do. As long as you go in with a bit of commitment and get on the throttle, it's so easy yeah. to do because the car's so communicative. And so I mean, you find that you're driving this thing in a way that you never imagined you could. Because it's yeah, and if, to the extent you, you sort of look down and you see your hands doing stuff yeah. and yeah. you're not really aware and you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. Look what my hands are doing. Who's doing it's that? so yeah. instinctive and, and innate um, and, mm. and easy, frankly, that... You know, you don't even need to really issue specific instructions from your brain yeah. to your hands. They just kind of know what to do um, because it feels so natural. Um, and if you haven't felt that, it's quite a weird experience. You look down and you can see, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm applying opposite. Look, I'm oversteering. And you're not really aware of it because it's also, it all feels so natural uh, and unscary. Um, it's a great, great feeling. Can I go hmm. completely the other way now? Go on, let's have it. Okay, okay. this is one of my, this is sort of like a generic thing, Okay rather than a specific car. I can give you a specific car, um, which I will, but an American muscle car. Yeah, okay. Okay. What sort of, are you thinking of a particular era or not really? Well, I am sort of, but I, you know, I could be, I could be argued round, but yeah, I'm thinking You're not, you're not of thinking the, of the 1980s, are you? Uh, funnily enough, I'm not thinking of the 1980s, um, <laughs> but I could easily be thinking of more modern times uh, with mm. all the nutty stuff that's around at the moment. But no, I mean, I, I'm sort of thinking late 60s. Late 60s yeah. and very, very early 70s before the emissions stuff. Um, it, it's a very specific type of car, isn't it? Um, but the charm of getting in one of these things and firing up some monstrous bit of bent V8 Detroit cast ironmongery brilliance. I just, you know, it's... The sound of those engines, I mean, if you something like, a, if you want a specific example, 1968 Dodge Charger 440RT, yeah? So a seven-litre big block um, V8. Um, do they just sound like nothing else in the world. I mean, they are so, I don't think any other engine sounds ex- as exciting at idle as one of those. You know, most engines, you have to rev them a bit to get them to go. This one, the moment it starts rotating, you are just thinking, wow. Um and and you get in them and uh, to begin with you just think they're just totally hopeless because they feel so ponderous um and all over the place 
uh, and you think it could be quite frustrating, but actually you just need to learn to relax into them and, you know, and, and do what they want to do. And there's just a certain sort of driving when you're on a big open road and your, your, your elbows on the, you know, on the windowsill and that engine is just bootling away. Uh, and then you get to a straight and you give it a bit of a squirt. It's just, you know, I can absolutely understand why entire generations of young Americans just grew up thinking they were the bee's knees. Um, they're not for everyone and they're not for every, you know, they're, they're not for every occasion. But on the right road, when you're in the right mood, I just love them. That's very cool. Yeah, actually, I've never driven a proper 60s, early 70s muscle car. Never been anywhere near one. Um, I'd love to, but it's such an enduring appeal, isn't it? A four-seat, fastback, coupe thing. With See, a great big V8. Fabulous, didn't it they? It looked fantastic. Yeah, I, I totally understand the appeal. And there are plenty of modern muscle cars that I, I really love. Um, yeah, cool. Right. I'm now going to go... <laughs> this is an odd one, um, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, I think you really must drive a Range Rover before you die. Um, my list. And I'm, yeah, okay, cool. So I'm, I'm thinking a modern one. I haven't driven the brand new one. Um, so in my mind is the the previous car. Um, yeah. And do you know, I, I think I'm going to let you explain why, given that it's on your list, because you wrote a farewell to the previous car that just perfectly summed up why I like them. So I'd actually rather hear it com- coming from you. It's about the sense of well-being that you get when you're driving them a sense of impregnability i mean i drove for my farewell driving one i took it up to, i took one up to sky um and the weather was vicious while we were out there and it was just like this vault and once you're in it and it's you know you're in those beautiful surroundings they're just such a nice place to be um and that driving position you know they talk about elevated driving positions in, in suvs well there's elevated driving position then there's the range rover driving position and you get into it and you just sort of think well everything out there may be shit but in here we're just fine and you think to yourself there's you know, there's pretty much nothing that you know the weather is certainly in this country is going to be able to chuck at you which is going to give this car any problems at all um and just you know particularly up in the sky where you know you'd be on these tiny little lanes or something would come the other way and just know you could drive off the road um which is a silly thing but you know and knowing that you could always just drive straight back onto it again without churning stuff up or getting stuck and um it's quite a difficult thing to explain um it's certainly not something you could ever explain using statistics or anything else but once you see it and once you feel it you know why people despite the fact that you know they you know they won't be the most reliable you know reliable the things compared to you know i don't know what else you could buy you know like that um but people just come back to them again and again and again because you just feel at home in them you feel safe in them and yeah and and, and the new one is exactly the same but just a bit more so there's nothing remarkable about the new one. When you drive one, which you will very shortly, uh, you will see it's 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 all of that. Um, but just you know, it's a bit more comfortable. It's a bit quieter. It's got more modern tech on it, and so on. But the the essential uh, appeal is there and as strong as ever. And it's be, and it's been like that from you know again on because I'm so bloody old. You know you know I can remember you know the the original the classic Range Rovers 
they did exactly the same thing. I can remember driving an LSE, which was the long wheelbase one with the 4.2 litre Rover V8 in it. Uh, again, up to Scotland um, in the, when would this have been? I guess the early 90s. Um, exactly the same thing. Um, yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll understand why people swear by them. And it, what is the feeling? The feeling is probably being on a hike, getting lost, the weather coming in, the sun setting, worrying, and then coming across an inn with nice rooms upstairs, a fire on, and beer on tap. It's that yeah. sort of thing, isn't it? Mm. You're home. You are home and safe. Yeah. Um, right, I've got one more on my list, and it is a very specific and particular car for a very particular reason. Um, you're going to have to stay with me on this one. It's the Aston Martin Vantage N430. So this was... When was this? 2013, 2014, 15 maybe, around then. Um, and the, the point about it is you will realise how a car can be more than the sum of its parts. This was when Aston Martin was <laughs> another one of the occasions where it was really struggling and there was no news. There was nothing for them to announce. And I think they went to a Geneva show with the N430, which was, as far as we could tell before we drove it, just some stickers and 10 more horsepower. We'd had the N420, there was the N400 before it, um, and they went to, I think it was Geneva, with this N430 that, apart from some yellow flashes of paint up the A-pillars or whatever, just didn't look different to anything else that they'd done before. But my goodness me, when you drove it, I'd, I adore them. And the, the, the reason that I've chosen it is that when you first start driving it, you find it's got this fly-off handbrake that can be a bit awkward. It's got a heavy clutch pedal. The steering at low speed is very weighty. Um, and they can be a bit tricky. And on a, a bad road, a road surface that doesn't suit it, it might feel a bit harsh. Um, and if you only drove it that far, you'd think this thing is hopeless. But when you find a road that suits that car, when the conditions suit and when you're prepared to press on a little bit, the way it comes together is just beautiful. It's like an orchestra that's finally found its conductor. It just starts working, it comes together. And you find that the steering is beautiful in its feel, in its rate of response, how it lets you know what the car is up to the composure and the flow of the chassis, the way it just rolls a bit, the balance. Um, that V8 engine is a honey once you really get it working. Um, uh, and so the, the reason that I wanted it on my list is that it demonstrates that a car can come together in particular circumstances. Um, and, uh, and I think that's an important point. You could write it off if you didn't drive it in the right conditions. But when you do, you realise just how special it is. Um, and that's potentially actually a flaw in that car. Maybe it should work across a wide range of environments. But I just think it's an important realisation to make. And I, for me, there hasn't been a better vantage since. Wow. Okay. It's a great car. It's a great yeah. car. No question yeah, at all. I love them. Okay. I've got quite a few more, but I won't do them all. Uh, I think there has to be a hot hatchback on there. Yeah. And we haven't had one yet. Um, well, we I had the Fiesta ST. We had the Fiesta ST. Sorry, we had the Fiesta ST. I mean, I, I, I guess what I meant was a sort of... Bigger uh, one. A sort of older classic, uh, you know. So, okay. uh, so it, this, this is obvious. I won't dwell on it, but if you haven't driven a 205 GTI, drive a 205 GTI um, and, you know, and drive it fast. 
again, absolute. Well, the rear suspension was a bit clever, but really nothing. No particularly clever tech on it. You know, single cam engine. You know, no turbochargers, no front wheel drive, but just executed. So, and so many of these cars are also they're about the execution, aren't they? It's not about the raw yeah. material; it's what you do with it. Yeah. Um, and you know, a two hundred five, a nice two hundred five GTI doesn't matter whether it's a one six or a one nine. Um, on the right road is more fun than any number of supercars I could name. I prefer to drive one than, you know, the most things. And, you know, they are still, okay, I mean, they are expensive now, but they're worth it. And getting a good one um, would just be a, I mean, I, I sold mine recently because I just wasn't using it because this, this job requires me to drive everything else. But the seven years I had, it was absolutely joyous. And for the, the beautiful engine, the balance of the car, um, and again, it's lightness. Uh, and I love the way they look. Um, they're very space efficient. They're just such clever cars. Um, talking of clever cars, uh, I've got to put this in there because the 2CV is, of course, the greatest car that's ever been built. Um, and, you know, it doesn't need to be a sort of 1950s ripple bonnet ridiculous thing like, like I have, which is so slow it can't get out of its own way. Um, even a 1980s one uh, with, you know, all the 29 horsepower rather than what 12 which is what i think i've got uh again it's just the cleverness of them you know they look so ridiculous you know um jasper carrot called them a not turn corrugated pram on wheels and you know and, and he and he wasn't really wrong um but when you drive them and you realize for instance how low the center of gravity is because of the flat formation engine and that suspension, that fully independent, uh, interconnected. You know, they, they were doing interconnected suspension in the 1950s. You know, McLaren was doing it in the 21st century. And you realise how well they handle, uh, how astonishingly well they ride, how beautifully... I mean, you could pull the seats out of them. So you turn up somewhere for a picnic. You know, I, I my daughter's road. So we were always going to um, regattas. And you stand there on the riverbank um, for hours and hours and hours. Well, we'd sit there because we'd go in the 2CV. We'd just pull the chairs out and sit on them. Um, fully convertible. Um, again, weighs nothing at all. Another sub 500 kilogram car. Um, just gen- absolute genius. Genius, that car. Designed before the war. Um, and just so clever and wonderful and you it is not possible to be driving one and be unhappy at the same time so there you go this Um, is good because i'm thinking old 911 205 gti 2cv um fit 500 k7 they're all cars that you own or have owned reasonably recently so we're not just making this stuff up are we no but i mean that's not a coincidence is it yeah it's not a coincidence yeah Uh, anyway i think looking at the time i think we're probably gonna have to leave it there aren't we yeah let's leave it there so those are the cars that you there are others but those are the cars you have to drive before you die i think that's a good comprehensive list what we didn't have is something with a really phenomenally exciting engine just to show you what that can be like you know what are we thinking lamborghini v12 ferrari v12 something like that um, and yeah, there are, but again, this is all because we're trying to keep it within the real world. That's apart right. Six seven five LT. <laughs> that's right. And I mean, we could probably do it again, to be honest, and not mention one of those cars again. But instead, what we are going to do next week is um, sort of personalise it a little bit to us, and we're going to talk about the cars that we haven't driven that we're absolutely determined to 
Um, and I mean, you've given me plenty to think about with your list. So I'm going to go away and um, come up with a list of cars that I am determined to drive. Um, and you'll do the same. Yeah. Well, I've already, um, I've already thought about this a bit and I've got some cars on there which are known to be terrible. <laughs> ah, well, there we but go. That's what, important. But, but, but I just want yeah. to drive them. I just want to drive them. Um, yeah. yeah. So and, you I feel, know why. and I feel that my motoring education will be incomplete without having done so. So, okay. um, yeah, we'll do that next week. Um, okay, we've got a listener question coming up now. Um, before we do that, please go and rate and review the podcast. And I can see that lots of you have been doing that. Um, so thank you, everybody, who has left a rating or a little review. We really appreciate it. It means a lot. Also, subscribe and follow wherever you listen to or watch the podcast. That helps us find an audience, a bigger audience, um, which, again, helps a lot. So the listener question comes from Simon, um, who says he lives on the west coast of Ireland, um, where there are lots of roads similar to the to the roads in the Scottish Highlands, so great roads. Um, he's considering buying a Porsche for weekend driving um, or trips to Europe, not interested in track days, that's an important point, and he's looking at a 999.1 or a 999.2 GT3. Hang on, there a 991.1? Uh, so a, a Gen a 991. 1 or Gen 2 991.1 GT3, yeah? Yes, and there were some important differences between those two cars. But he also wonders if, for his use, a 991.2 GTS, so the last GTS, would that be a better option? Okay, if he was, if he'd put a nine nine two GTS in there, I'd say that's the perfect car for him. A nine so nine nine two GTS. GTS, yeah. So the current GTS, uh, which is far more differentiated than any previous GTS has been over um, the standard car. Um, that to me is the. So what we want is we're looking for the sweet spot uh, among performance nine elevens. Um, I, I think. If I'm honest with you, what he needs, and this is this might be my favorite, well, it's up there among my favorite cars of all time, is I think that he wants a manual Gen 2 991 Touring. Mm. GT3, think, so the first GT3 Touring. Th- sorry, the first GT3 Touring, exactly. Um, I couldn't do better than that. Mm. Um, you know, a really usable road car with that fabulous engine in it manual gearbox i'd have mine in a dark color debadged um the ultimate stealth car um and i, I yeah th- but the thing is the only problem is that he only wants it for weekends and and it's, it's almost too good for that but yeah i can't do any better than that what do you think um so for me it comes down to how bothered he is about manual gearbox or paddle shift gearbox um and i think i would have because manual would be important to me particularly in that kind of car i would have so, so not, the, the point being is that you couldn't get a manual in the gen 1 gt3 that's right that's right yeah. so i would have a gen 2 991 gt3 with manual however you know I'm, I'm actually the same as you i love the touring i love that it's um, not as showy as the GT3, the standard GT3 yeah. with this big wing. Um, I think they look sensational. So that's the one that I'd have. However, I, they're probably mega money, aren't they? Yeah, um, well, absolutely. So that could well be a problem. But 
either way, I think this comes under nice problems to have, doesn't it? And really, I don't think you can get it terribly wrong, can you? I would also recommend having a look at a 997 GTS because mm. I think that is one of the all-time great. A manual rear-drive 997 GTS coupe is a wonderful car. Um, and in fact, any GTS, um, you know, 991 GTS is a great car. Um, mm. Yeah. I'm not sure we've answered. I've probably created more problems than we've <laughs> than we've solved here. But um, well, we've weighed in a little bit. Gen two nine nine one GT three touring manual dark yeah. colours debadged. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll have one of those as well, please. Um, well, there you go. Please send us your listener questions um, any way you like. Um, social media is an easy way to do it, or info at the the dash intercooler dot com. Go and visit our website, our new website, which is sort of six weeks in after launch, I think. Um, it's the-intercooler.com. Go and have a look. You can start your one-month free trial. Um, we think you'll like it. Go and check it out. And we'll be back next week with another, with another podcast. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 